Is it ever nice to hear from Adrian and Sharon, just such good friends of uh, CW Community Church, our missionaries in the Dominican, and uh, boy, the great work they're doing there. God bless you guys. We're uh, well into a series on 1 John, Walking in the Light. This is part nine, and the title this morning is Loving God Means Loving What God Loves. Loving God means loving what God loves. We're going to look 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 2. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... Then he talks about, uh, he talks about the desires of the flesh. That's the first thing. The desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. So these two relate to what we'd like. This one relates to what we already have. But a life centered on those things, he says, is, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then this reminder, and the world is passing away along with its desires, this promise, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. I see kind of three arguments, three arguments in their cautions, warnings. First, uh, don't love the world because if you do, you can't love God. That's in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Secondly, don't love the world because, well, the world is passing away along with its desires. That's in the 17th verse. And then third, don't love the world because only the one who does the will of the Father or the will of God abides forever. That's in verse 17. So that's that's a quick overview of these three cautions that old John, toward the end of his life, he has for these Christian people, his dear children, whom he loves so much. Three cautions. But it raises the issue that I want to study this morning. A strange issue in some ways. I mean, why isn't it easier for us to love God than it is? He has to tell us three times not to love the world. Don't misdirect your love. Love God. And he gives these three reasons. I mean, you think it would be easier to love God than, than it, than it is. I mean, look at how many good things we receive each day from his hand. There's certainly no shortage of his love, the bounty, the mercy, the grace of God. You'd think that we would just naturally have this affinity, this love for God. Sacrifices ought to seem small. Obedience ought to be easy. But go through the scriptures. Christians are constantly, they're, they're encouraged, they're, they're warned, they're commanded to follow God, to love God, to stay close to God. Why? Why isn't it easier to love God than it is? Now, that's the subject that I think John addresses in our text. 
He's writing about our love for God, and he's writing about what threatens that love. I think there are two approaches. Two approaches to um, growing love for God. One won't work, and one will work. That's what I want to look at. Point number one. Two approaches to cultivating and nourishing a love for God. First, you can try to make yourself love God more by constant effort to stir up feelings of love for him in your heart, usually through protracted seasons of corporate prayer, praise, and worship. And let me say right off the bat, there's absolutely nothing wrong and everything right about extended times of worship. I mean, the, the, the Bible calls us to express our devotion to the Lord, not just in service, but in, in praise and, and worship. It's a cop-out to say, well, we just obey the word and we leave praise and worship to those, you know, those crazy charismatics. You can't choose between worship and obedience, because worship is commanded. Worship is a matter of obedience. Praise is an issue of obedience. So you aren't fully obeying God unless you are a person of passionate praise and worship. All of that's a given in my mind. And I agree with that. That practice of outward praise, expressive praise, passionate praise, and worship to the Lord. My point right now is not that this desire is wrong, so much as it sometimes gets, I think, misdirected and can be incomplete in terms of creating love for God in my heart. And it's that incompleteness that frightens me, and it's what I want to address first. There are times of spiritual refreshing in God's presence. No one can deny it. I've experienced it. You've experienced it, I'm sure. You begin to feel the burden for the barrenness of your own heart. You begin to feel almost convicted as you sing. You hear the cry of those around you for more of God, and this longing starts to well up in your soul. Yes, Lord, that's what I want. I need your touch. I feel so dry and empty and the heart breaks, tears flow. God graciously warms your heart, floods your soul with his presence, and all of that is wonderful. It's biblical. But, but un unless we understand God's intent in that moment of touch, I think we're going to be tragically disappointed over time because the effects of that touch were never meant as an end. They were meant as a beginning. And I think without a biblical understanding of what John describes in our text, the warmth of that touch on Sunday might be gone by Wednesday and you're going to be left wondering what happened there. That's because I can't sustain that emotional peak of my sense of love for God. I can't sustain that by my own energy. I think there's a better way to grow love for God in your heart. I think it's more biblical. 
but I think it might be the road less traveled. And it's what I want to get into in point number two. I can greatly increase my love for God only, I'm talking long term now, I can greatly increase my love for God only by eliminating competing objects of affection. Sometimes at night I'll warm up a snack in uh, the microwave before I go to bed. I have to be more careful with that than I used to be. My wife fiddles around with apples and celery. And I like those frozen little pizzas. And I've learned how a microwave works. And it goes like this. Took me a while to figure it out. The more little items you have on the plate, the more time it takes for the microwave to do its work. That's because there are more little items on the plate absorbing the power than if you had just one item on the plate. When you've got a whole bunch of items on the plate, less and less energy reaches each item individually. Now, we're coming back to the heart of the question I raised at the beginning of this message about why loving God isn't always the easiest thing in the world to do. And John opens up the door to understanding that issue. It isn't hard to love God. He is supremely lovable, worthy of all devotion. In heaven, we know that because in heaven, all around the throne of God, all the created beings love him endlessly and effortlessly all the time. But I'm not in heaven, and you aren't either. I'm on earth. Our text, 1 John 2, 15 and 17, reminds us we're on earth and we are surrounded by the things of this world. There's a lot of items on our plates. And the problem is, my heart can only devote itself to so many objects. John says, my love for God gets diluted and even repelled by my love for other things. I wrongly conclude that loving God is hard, but it isn't. I simply have too many gods on the plate, and they're all drawing all the energy I can muster. So my devotion to God, hear me, is bound to get thinned out. You can't fix that by singing worship choruses. You have to take some of those other things off the plate before you put it into the microwave. Point number three. We know this is true because what John states generally in principle, he now says pretty specifically. Point number three, John says love for God and love for the world, they simply can't exist together in the same heart. Too many things on the plate. Look at 15 and 16. When he starts thinking about loving God, he first has to tell us what not to love. That's striking. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. This is, this is very uncomfortable for us to hear deeply. But it is the real problem. My devotion can't be turned toward God until it's turned away from the world. Now, John doesn't mean we shouldn't love the world in the sense of being engaged in reaching it for God. We're to be engaged in this world with the same kind of love Father God has for this world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that kind of love for the world isn't a threat to my love for God because it's the same kind of love for the world that God has. I'll talk about that more at the end. But there's another kind of love for the world that isn't God's love at all. And John zeroes in on the much more common love for the world that is its love for pleasures, love for possessions in this world. It's, it's a selfish love that God doesn't have for this world and he doesn't want me to have either. So this is, this is the kind of love for the world that John is warning about. He says it's deadly because it chokes out love for God. It has to be, it has to be dealt with before love for God is possible. So in other words, I can't just, I can't just concentrate on growing love for God. In this world, I have to concentrate on loving this world less. Please think about that for a minute. How much energy does the church spend just trying to get people to love God more? Feed on his word. Grow in prayer. Attend church regularly. Seek the presence and power of the spirit. Raise your hands. Worship God passionately. Now, none of that is bad and none of that instruction is untrue. But somewhere along the way, a thoughtful Christian has to stop and say, wait a minute. Why isn't this working better than it is? Why is, why is there so much effort and sometimes, sometimes so little changed character? Why can I, why can I worship God so well with the worship band and live so poorly on Thursday? This is not a tiny issue. Don't you honestly ever ask questions like that? Why is the church in so many poor third world countries exploding at the seams, drastically changing society around it? What's the difference? And I'll, I'll tell you my opinion. This is my opinion. It's very common in North America to try and get people to love God more without compelling them to love the world less. And it won't work. It can't work. John says it can't work. We've discovered how marketing church and religion works in North America. People will flock to churches that emphasize loving God more with better music, better courses, better lighting, better media presentations, snappier services, preferably brief messages with lattes and mochaccinos. But in terms of transforming people into the image of Christ and confronting the culture around us, it doesn't always happen. 
So what we're talking about here, this is the constant teaching of the whole New Testament. You, you look at the words of Jesus in perhaps his most famous parable about how the kingdom of God expands in power and influence in our hearts. Look what he says in Matthew 13. We'll look at 7 and then look at his expl- explanation of verse 7 and verse 22. So Matthew 13, 7. Other seeds, John says the seed is the word, he tells us. Other seeds fell among thorns. The thorns grew up and, 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 and choked them. What do they choke? Well, the seeds. Jesus gives his explanation, 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Okay, so he's in church. But, but the cares of this world... The deceitfulness of riches. Choke. That's the second time he's used that verb. Choke the word, and it proves, there it is, unfruitful. Make no mistake about it. This is, this is not a man just itching to ruin his spiritual life. In his own mind, he's probably thinking he's trying to grow. That's why he's receiving, hearing, reading the word in the first place. He seems to have a heart to know God. He reads his Bible, but for all of his devotional time or church time or worship time, he's not going anywhere. I think this is where John would have gotten his theology about the danger of love for this world. This man in Jesus' parable is going nowhere spiritually, and he's going to remain in that dead state no matter how much he reads his Bible. Because there's something else in his heart that's making his love for God unfruitful. Notice that. It's in that 22nd verse. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and it proves, underline it, unfruitful. That's John's point in our text when he says in 2.15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Four. What does John mean then? Let's get specific when he says, don't love the world. Probably that 16th verse is where he deals with it most directly. For all that is in the world, that's very general, all. So he's, he, he, he's a pretty good teacher. Now he's going to drill down into that all. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. So one, two, Three, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So he, he breaks his analysis of loving the world into these three statements. He talks about desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. So all three are related to things. They revolve around material things. That's, that's the world system that John is analyzing. Things geared into creating, but never satisfying our deepest desires. They create the desires, but they can't meet the desires. So, so here's how these three things deconstruct love for God. The first two, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, those are geared to the things we want. The last one, Pride and possessions relates to things we already possess. So, so this is how John describes 
the two manifestations of the world's passion for pleasure. This is what chokes love for God. There's the thrill of getting and the thrill of having. So these, according to John, these are the things that make loving God impossible. And and that leads to a really important question. Why? Why do these three worldly desires, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, why do these desires make love for God impossible? And very quickly, I want to, I want to, three reasons why they do that. First, the desires of the flesh expand to increase our sense of need for those things. So in other words, these are demanding desires. They, they, they create more desire for themselves. We all know that. I mean, we all know how, how quickly luxuries turn into necessities. And that has important spiritual implications. We all know how Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He says that it's like a fountain, a spring or a fountain. Well, well, the desires of the flesh, you see, they're the exact opposite. The, the desires of the flesh are more like a drain than a fountain. They are like that, that drain at the bottom of your swimming pool. They, they just constantly suck more and more and more of you into them. You never will have enough. And they are so effective at reaching out for our worship because we are all created as creatures of desire. We were made to love something, specifically someone, outside of ourselves. And the spirit, the spirit of the age, my goodness, keeps churning out idols for our hearts to bow in front of. I think Paul saw this danger and said this alone would make the last days the most difficult days. Let me just take the time to read his words to young Pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come, here's what he calls them, times of difficulty. But but he's not thinking about Antichrist. He's not thinking about persecution. He's not thinking about Christians being thrown to lions. He's not thinking about that at all. Times of difficulty. For, so that means he's explaining this now, people will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parent. Notice where it starts. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. They will be lovers of self. They will be lovers of money, not loving good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Pride in possessions, right? Lovers of pleasure rather than, you can't do both. So Paul is saying exactly what John is saying. You can be lovers of pleasure or you can be lovers of God. What you can't be is loving God and loving pleasure at the same time. Having the appearance, it looks like you can, but you can't. But denying its power, avoid such people. 
I mean, read those words and think them through because they describe the only lifestyle left for those whose lives are just being swept along by the current of the desires of the flesh. No tsunami has greater power. That's the desires of the flesh. Here's, here's the second way, the second enemy. B, desires of the eyes. They're so attractive because, because they hide the truth that the world and its desires are passing away. I mean, we see the things that are right around us. They seem so stable. They seem so permanent. They seem so lovely. The system of this world is, is to attract all of us to love the outward appearance of things. It's, it's the way the enemy and the spirit of the age and the culture around us, it's the way it keeps us from focusing on the fact that this is all passing away. The lust of the eyes is the devil's trick to shut eternity out of our plans. It's designed to lock us into thinking short-term, visible, present. Makes the things of Christ seem irrelevant. Third, the danger, and here's how it works, pride in possessions, it destroys love for God by the illusion that I can secure my life by what I have rather than who God is. So pride and possession, look what I have. That keeps me from realizing how insecure my life really is, how shaky it all is. Most of us know these words. I'm going to show you these words first and then the context. These are beautiful words. Behold, Jesus is the speaker. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. What a great promise. It looks so simple. It looks so lovely. What keeps people from opening the door? Why doesn't everybody let a loving, gracious, redeeming, forgiving Lord come in? Why not? Well, the context will tell you why people don't open the door. Look at verses 17 and 18. For you say, I am rich. Now we're talking pride and possessions. I have prospered, past tense. I need nothing. And you don't realize that you're, this is a big contrast. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Can you imagine someone just out in public, not even aware that they don't have any clothes on? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, true true values, true riches, so that you may be rich, white garments, so that you may close yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Underscore those, those words in verse 17 where it says, not realizing. That's what pride and possession does. Five, wrapping up. How shall we close with such an important topic and such an important text? Obviously, the stakes are really high. He says in verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. 
But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Things that abide are obviously better than things that pass away. We, we, we crave everlastingness even when we're duped by the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, desires of the flesh. So eternity hangs in the balance when affections are affixed to trinkets. This is one problem we can't buy something to fix. There's no amount of wealth that can solve the problem. The things we buy only increase this problem. So the solution is redirecting and editing our loves to nothing but God and pursuing nothing but God. Remember the microwave You need to take some things off the plate so that more energy reaches the one thing you're trying to bake or cook or warm up. Any attempt to just focus on loving God more through through the word, through prayer, through worship, through church, any attempt that just does that without loving the world less is doomed to failure. Let me close with These words from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts... Boast in this, that he understands me and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And you'll notice, just like John, the Lord speaks through the prophet. And before saying the things we should love, practicing steadfast love, justice, righteousness. Before he reaches that, it's let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Some things have to be turned off before love for God can be turned on. And that, friends, if you will edit the idols from your life. Love the world less. Here's what you'll find. When you read your word, it will bear fruit. When you gather in church, God will bless your life. When you worship, you won't feel like a hypocrite. That these two things, they have to be kept together. Let's pray. We're so grateful for pointed words from our New Testaments that are designed to correct our misguided thinking at times. We, we, 
we don't want to hear your word with condemnation. We want to hear it with repentant hearts. Draw our hearts to you as we delete the false objects of affection in this world. There is greater joy, treasure. Jesus, you told the parable, buried treasure. There's treasure there when we sell everything else to possess it. Oh, let that be true of everyone in Cedarview Community Church. Just work that gracious work deeply, more and more in all of our hearts. Thank you because you hear us when we pray. And there's grace greater than all our sin. Amen. Amen. Make sure you join us tonight, 6.30 for soul food. How to get fruitfulness out of God's word. That'll be the study. Join us tonight. God bless the church. Love one another.